everybody. I made this fun episode about Haunted Hollywood for my Patreons last month, but I've been sitting here thinking about it and I thought that you guys might really like this too. I try to keep my stuff for Patreon very exclusive, but this episode was very unique because Hollywood is something that just has so much life to it, even though it's mostly a historical tourist trap now, which I talk about a little bit. But I thought you guys might enjoy to hear this episode, and it's a little bit different because I'm talking to more of my Patreon members. Um, so yeah, just keep in mind some of the things I say, like when I say I'm going to post pictures, I posted stuff on my Patreon page just for them. And if you want to join my Patreon page. I'll have a link to it down below, but you can look me up at patreon.com and it's historically haunted. So I hope you guys enjoy this fun episode of The Haunts of Hollywood. Hello, all you amazing Patreons. Welcome to another episode made exclusively for you. I hope that you guys had an awesome Halloween. Before I get started, I just wanted to mention that this pandemic isn't letting up anytime soon, as sad as I am to say that. And because of that, if anyone runs into any uh, money trouble or job cuts, please don't feel obligated to stay on my Patreon. I would never want anyone financially to struggle just to give me a small monthly donation. So I'm not working right now either and I totally understand and it's all okay. Don't worry, I will still be making uh, spooky content for you guys on my normal days and so don't worry about it. And if you have to go, I totally get it. Don't think I'm gonna be mad or anything like that. I would never be mad at you guys. You guys are amazing just for supporting me for as long as you could. So thank you guys again so much for your support. On today's episode, I'm going to be taking you down the red carpet of Hollywood. Back in the glory days of the silver screen, Hollywood was a place for young, aspiring actors to come and try to find an acting gig. Those who made it became famous and lived around the Hollywood area. They frequented famous hotels, bars, restaurants, and studios, and many ended up being buried in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery after they passed away. But some say that many of the frequented haunts of the old stars are literally haunted by them. And that is what I will be talking about tonight, haunted locations found in Hollywood. So let's get ready to go down that red carpet into haunted Hollywood. for Hollywood. Hollywood began with nothing more than an adobe hut on land outside of Los Angeles, California in 1853. In the next 20 to 30 years, it became a successful agricultural area for the Cahanga Valley. A real estate developer by the name of Harvey Henry Wilcox moved to Los Angeles in 1883. He was from Topeka, Kansas, and came with his second wife, Diada. He purchased 160 acres, and one story credits Diada with naming it Hollywood. 
Wilcox wasn't a very successful rancher, so he decided to break up his land into lots and create a town. The first street was named Prospect Avenue, which is today known as Hollywood Boulevard. By 1900, Hollywood's population was 500, and it had its own post office, newspaper, hotel, and two markets. Nearby Los Angeles had a population of around 100,000. The first part of the historic Hollywood Hotel was built by 1902. This hotel was built by another real estate tycoon named H.J. Whitley. He was called the father of Hollywood, and the Dolby Theater now sits on the site of the Hollywood Hotel. The Dolby Theater hosts the Oscars every year. Due to the difficulties keeping with water supply for the town, Hollywood merged with Los Angeles in 1910. This allowed the town's access to the new aqueduct system. In the meantime, Thomas Edison had invented the motion picture camera and was in control of several moving-making patents. He sued independent filmmakers on the East Coast. Filmmakers discovered the Los Angeles area to be a great place to make their movies. It had ideal weather, a variety of terrain, and they were far away from Thomas Edison. In fact, if they got wind of any of Thomas Edison's agents were on the way to California, they could flee to Mexico for a while to avoid them. The first film ever to be made in Hollywood was called The Count of Monte Cristo in 1908. Some of the studios making silent films moved to Hollywood from 1910 through 1920s. They included Biograph Company, Mary Pickford, and Lionel Barrymore. They also included Cecil D. DeMille and the Charlie Chaplin Studios. The Golden Age of Hollywood covers the years when five major movie studios controlled the making of films and which films were shown around the country. Each movie studio owned their own large theaters and only showed movies made by them. The big five were Paramount Pictures, RKO, 20th Century Fox, MGM Studios, and Warner Brothers. During this time, they also had some studios that were called the Little Three, and they were Universal Pictures, Columbia Pictures, and United Artists. To give you in comparison, today the big five is NBC Universal, Viacom, CBS, Warner Media, Walt Disney Studios, and Sony Pictures. During the time of the original Big Five, stars had to contract with one of the studios and could only make movies with that studio. During this time, it wasn't great for the actors because not only could they only do movies with one studio, but the studio also controlled what movies they did. So they could have an Oscar-winning performance one minute, and then the next movie would be a really messed up comedy that wasn't very well done. The Golden Age came to an end in 1948 when the United States Supreme Court ruled that studios could not own their own movie theaters and show exclusively their own movies with their contracted actors. This freed actors from being locked into contracts with only one studio. Today, Hollywood isn't really what it once was. Many stars don't really live in Hollywood anymore, and Hollywood is more of a tourist trap destination than anything. But that doesn't mean that Hollywood doesn't have amazing old historical buildings and also very haunted places. Now I'm going to cover some of the most famously haunted locations in Hollywood. First, we have the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. This historic hotel dates back to the golden era of Hollywood. 
Opening on May 15, 1927, it was financed by Douglas Fairbanks and his wife Mary Pickford, movie producer Louis B. Mayer, which was the MGM Studios owner, and Sid Garman, the owner of the TLC Chinese Theater. Today it is called the Garman Chinese Theater. The hotel is across the street from the Chinese Theater. The name was chosen to honor former President Theodore Roosevelt. The very first Academy Award ceremony was held at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in 1929. It was a private dinner gala that was followed by a short 15-minute awards presentation. Best Picture was Wings, Best Actor was Emil Jennings, and Best Actress was Janet Gaynor. Those were the only awards given that year, which when you think about today's award ceremonies that take like three hours. That's crazy to think they only gave out three awards. The hotel was a favorite for many of the city's movie stars. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard used to meet here secretly since Gable was married to another actress, so that was a scandalous moment. Shirley Temple took tap dancing lessons from Bill Bojangles Robinson on the Spanish tiled steps just outside the front door of the lobby. Marilyn Monroe lived in the hotel for about two years during the 1940s while she was filming a movie. The room she occupied is now called the Maryland Suite. I Love Lucy used the hotel in 1955 for an episode to show the arrival of the Ricardos and Mertzes to Hollywood. Ethel Patterson, who played Ethel Mertz, lived in the Roosevelt Hotel throughout her career. The hotel began to struggle in the 1950s with various owners covering up its original architectural features with their own renovations and remodeling. In 1985, Richardson's Hotels bought the hotel and spent almost $35 million to restore it back to its original Spanish colonial revival style. The Roosevelt was designated a Los Angeles Historical Cultural Monument by the city in 1991. The famous stars from the golden age of Hollywood that spent so much time at the hotel seem to be visiting it after death. Perhaps the most famous ghost in the hotel is none other than Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe was one of the most famous stars of all time. She was known for her no-shame curves and her rule-breaking, but also her kindness. After she tragically passed away to a drug overdose at the age of 36, her ghost started appearing in her old room in Suite 246 at the Roosevelt. She has been seen in the mirror as if she is standing behind the person looking into it. She has also been seen dancing in one of the hotel's old ballrooms. The ghost of Carol Lombard has also been seen by many guests and staff. Her ghost sightings are more memorable experience because she appears floating above the floor on the top levels of the hotel. In the old room that the first Oscars were held in, people have claimed to see a man dressed in a tuxedo wandering around the old stage. Staff have also reported seeing a man in a white suit in the same location, but no one seems to know who these two ghosts are. Another ghost that likes to make himself known is Montgomery Clift. The most common thing Clift is known for is patting people on their shoulders. He has also been seen watching maids work in the room 928. He stayed in this room while filming the movie From Here to Eternity. Up next, we have Culver Studios. Culver Studios is located in Culver City, Los Angeles County, California. The founder of Culver Studios was named Harry Culver. The studio was built in 1918 by Thomas H. Ensay, who was an American silent film pioneer. He was an actor, producer, director, and screenwriter. The first building he had ever built is known as the Mansion. It was modeled after George Washington's home at Mount Vernon. The building was the main administration building on the lot. It covered more than 15,000 square feet and had a two-story tall white columns. He ran the studios from 1919 to 1924. 
By 1920, there was about 40 buildings, including two stages, a hospital, a fire department, and Ensei worked with a team of directors and kept creative control of his films. Ensei died on November 19, 1924, at the age of only 44. Ensei became ill on board a yacht of a newspaper tycoon, William Randolph Hearst, on November 15. He received medical treatment and was taken by train to Del Mar, where he was under the care of a second physician. His wife and oldest son came to Del Mar, and then the group traveled from Los Angeles, where Ensei died at home. The official cause of death was heart failure, but there were many rumors that his death was suspicious for many years to follow. One rumor published in the LA Times was that Ense had been shot in the head. His widow left for Europe seven months later, which led to some of the rumors of foul play. Ense's widow sold the studio to Cecil B. DeMille, and he renamed it to DeMille Studios. He ran it for two years, and the studio was expanded and renovated. He built a 70-set theater next to the mansion house. DeMille owned the studio until 1928. The studio continued to be owned by a variety of companies over the years. Here are just some of the notable owners. In 1928, RKO purchased the studios and controlled the careers of Betty Davis, Robert Mitchell, Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, Fred Astaire, and Ginger Rogers. Notable films made during this time include King Kong with Skull Island being built on one of the back lots and also the original A Star is Born. David O. Selznick leased the studio and produced Gone with the Wind. Some people think the mansion was used as the plantation house Terra in Gone with the Wind, but it wasn't. The mansion was used in the credit scene, which explains the confusion. However, Terra was built on the back lot along with other buildings used in the scenes showcasing Atlanta burning. Desilu Productions, owned by Lucille Ball and her husband Desi Arnaz, brought the lot in 1956 and renamed it Desilu Studios. Paramount Studios bought Desilu Productions in 1967. Many TV shows were shot here. Some of the TV shows were The Untouchables, The Andy Griffith Show, Hogan's Heroes, Batman, Bonanza, and Two Pilots of Star Trek. And by the way, I found as a fun fact, we can all thank Lucille Ball for Star Trek because she was the one who pushed for that pilot to be uh, brought forward. So thank you, Lucille Ball, for making one of the coolest TV shows ever. Then the studios were bought and sold several times until it was purchased by Amazon Studios in 2017. They had plans to more than double the size of the lots and planned to move in by 2020, but with COVID, we'll see what happens. The studio has been known as a hotspot for paranormal activity for many years. The most seen ghost is that of Thomas Ensay. It appears that Thomas doesn't want to give up ownership of his original studio, even in death. He has been seen walking around the various sets and sound stages as if he's checking on the studio. Sightings of his ghost became more frequent when they began to renovate the lot in the late 1980s. Construction crews started to talk about seeing a man in 1920s-style clothing with a bowler hat on. He started to watch the workers from above on the catwalks. On one account, he appeared in the sound studio and angrily yelled at the workers, I don't like what you're doing to my studio, before he vanished by walking through a wall. Needless to say, the workers freaked out and ran out of the building and didn't want to go back in, and I don't blame them. Thomas is most seen often walking up the stairs to his old office on the second floor in the old administration building as if he's just going to work. With Amazon scheduled to move in soon, I wonder what kind of paranormal activity they might encounter when they start to change things. Up next, we have the Pantages Theater. 
The Pantages Theatre is a beautiful remnant of the Art Deco era that reached its peak during the Golden Age of Hollywood. It was built by Alexander Pantages, who was a successful vaudeville circuit owner at the time. The theatre first opened on June 4, 1930, with the film titled Floridora Girl, starring Marion Davies. It is located on Hollywood Boulevard, a very short distance from the famous intersection of Hollywood and Vine. This area was a popular theater district with El Capitan and the Egyptian Theater and Garmin's Chinese Theater located in the same area. The Pantages was the last movie palace built in Hollywood. The theater had two grand carpeted staircases and there is a starburst ceiling pattern in the lobby and the auditorium. The theater had 2,812 seats and the stage and the backstage areas were designed so that vaudeville acts as well as the showings for movies could take place. During the Depression, vaudeville acts became too expensive to support, so the theater was only used for films. Pantages had to sell his own theater in 1932 because of financial pressures. He sold the theater to 20th Century Fox, and then RKO bought it in 1949. Howard Hughes was the owner of RKO at this time, and he used the second floor space for his offices. Hughes owned the theater until 1965. The Pantages hosted the Academy Awards for 11 years, from 1950 to 1960. The first televised Academy Awards was at this location in 1953. Pantages Theater was sold yet again in 1965, this time to Pacific Theaters. They covered up many of the Art Deco design elements using curtains and dropped ceilings. The theater switched to only hosting live stage productions in 1977. Pacific Theaters and its partners, the Netherlanders Organization, restored the Pantages Theater back to its original Art Deco glory in the 2000 with a $10 billion renovation. It received a Conservancy Preservation Award in 2001. Disney debuted The Lion King in California at the Pantages on October 19, 2000, with about 2,700 people attending. The Pantages continues to present live stage and Broadway-level productions, and the Pantages Theater is one of the highest-grossing venues in all of Los Angeles. This theater is gorgeous, with all that over-the-top gaudy art deco design. I will post some pictures of it so you guys can see what it looks like. And I can't believe that people tried to cover up all that amazing art. I am so glad that they put it back to its former glory and I hope they never touch it again. If you have listened to my haunted theater episodes, then it should not come as a shock to hear that this place is haunted by many ghosts. I found a very interesting story from 1994. It goes like this. After a performance, the cast and crew were leaving for the night and the last one to leave was a woman who worked for the wardrobe department. On her way out of the theater to the side exit, the lights went out suddenly, plunging her into total darkness. She could not see anything and tripped over something and began to have a panic attack. She suddenly felt someone help her to her feet and guide her to the exit. As soon as she opened the exit door to let in some light, she turned around to thank the person who had helped her and there was no one there. Many people believe that this was the ghost of Alexander Pantages. Ever since his death, his ghost has been seen throughout the theater, and he has always been described as a helpful ghost and quite a gentleman. There have been many claims from ushers over the years of a man who gets up in the middle of a performance and walks toward the exit. When the ushers go to open the door for him, he vanishes. People think that this also might be Mr. Pantages because he is dressed in 1930s-style clothing. The theater is also known for the legend of the singing woman. It is believed that during the 1930s, a woman passed away during a performance. After her death, people began reporting hearing a woman singing in the auditorium when there was no one in there. 
This has been reported day and night. According to legend, in 1994, she was heard by a live audience singing. But there is no context to this story, and it's very vague, so I think this story is probably just made up to fit the legend, but I'm not sure. Another well-known entity to the theater is Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes's ghost is known to hang out on the second floor, and Howard Hughes's former office space is now a conference room. Workers who enter this space claim feeling cold spots when there is no air conditioning on and feeling like being watched. They also even have experienced a cold breeze pass right by them. Howard Hughes was a very tall man, and there are reports of seeing a very tall shadow figure that walks around the second floor. Reporters have also claimed to hear the sound of a desk drawers opening and closing, brass handles on a desk clicking, and the sound of papers being shuffled. Many believe that this is still Howard Hughes going about his business and working hard. We have another haunted studio location. Paramount Studios is the only studios from the original Big Five that is still in operation. The studio has quite a 108-year history. Adolf Zucker was the owner of the New York Nickelodeon. Nickelodeons were small theaters that showed short, silent films in the early 1900s. The price of admission was a nickel, and Odeon is the Greek word for theater. So the first Nickelodeon opened in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1905. By 1908, there was almost 8,000 in the United States. In the beginning of these Nickelodeons, they were known as the more seedy type of theaters. So people would actually just pay a nickel sometimes and go to a back room in a shop and sit in a folding chair and watch a short silent film. As the film industry improved the quality and increased the length of their movies, larger and fancier theaters were built and these theaters were thought to be more respectable. Zucker was able to get the rights to a four-reel film, Queen Elizabeth, that debuted on July 12, 1912, and it was the first full-length drama to be shown in the United States. Zucker started the Famous Players Film Company and made his own films in New York. In 1913, Zucker created another company to distribute his films. He named the company Paramount Pictures. Zucker partnered with Jesse L. Lasky in 1916. The Jesse L. Lasky Company was producing films in Hollywood and had began using Zucker's company to distribute the films. Paramount Studios built its first studio in 1926 on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles. It had four large sound stages on 26 acres. The studio received its first Academy Award for Best Picture with the movie Wings. It was a silent movie about fighter pilots in World War I. During the Golden Age, Paramount Studios really took off. The studio branched out into television in the mid-1960s when they produced the Desilu Studios in 1967, as I talked about earlier. During the 60s and 70s, they continued making movies as well, like Psycho, Breakfast at Tiffany's, True Grit, The Godfather Trilogy, and Star Trek, the original movie series. The studio continues producing films and TV shows in the 21st century. Paramount Studios is famous for something else, its ghostly neighbors. You see, Paramount Studios is right next door to Hollywood Forever cemetery. Security guards who work the night shift have nicknamed the studios Paranormal Paramount. The reason for that is it seems that the ghosts from the cemetery like to wander over quite a lot. Security guards have reported seeing many apparitions in 1930s and 40s style clothing. 
The most common complaint people make is knocking sounds and echoing footsteps being heard inside many of the sound buildings. There have been problems with equipment breaking down or malfunctioning completely out of nowhere. The Hart building seems to have a female ghost that appears only to men, and they report that she wears a very strong rose-scented perfume. One of the most famously haunted locations on the lot is Stage 19. This place is so haunted that many security guards refuse to work the night shift there. The main ghost at Stage 19 is believed to be the ghost of Heather O'Rourke. You might remember her as the little blonde from the movie Poltergeist that says, They're here. She was also on the cast of Happy Days for 12 episodes. She tragically passed away at only the age of 12 due to a surgical complication. Her ghost has been seen playing on the stage and security guards have also heard her laughing and playing on the catwalk. She apparently loved to play up there when she was on the set of Happy Days. Since Hollywood Forever Cemetery is right next to Paramount Studios, I think it's only fitting that we talk about its infamous ghosts. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery was founded in 1899. The original name was Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery. It is located on Santa Monica Boulevard in the center of Hollywood. The cemetery included 100 acres until 40 unused acres were bought by Paramount and RKO. The cemetery was sold in 1939 to June Roth. In my opinion from doing research, Roth was kind of a jerk. He didn't give the cemetery much attention and the property fell into disrepair and was vandalized often. He was also a racist and kept the cemetery segregated and would not allow the first black actor to ever win an Academy Award, Harriet McDaniel, to be buried here. So scratch that. He was a jerk, not kind of a jerk. He was a total jerk. The conditions were so bad at one point that families were actually paying to have their loved ones removed from the cemetery to be put somewhere else that actually gave them respect. Tyler and Brent Cassidy bought the cemetery in 1998 after Roth's death. They renamed it Hollywood Forever Cemetery and put millions of dollars into restoring the property. The Cassidys also bought a monument to honor Harriet McDaniel. They began showing outdoor movies there in 2002. Today, it is a beautiful cemetery with a full-service funeral home and crematorium, and it also has a cultural event center. The cultural event center hosts concerts and what's called Cinesvia, and that is films that are projected against the white wall of a mausoleum while 4,000 guests are seated on the Fairbanks lawn to watch. The shows run from May through September, and it's a really popular event. Many movie legends are buried here, like Judy Garland, Cecil D. DeMille, Rudolph Valentino, Mickey Rooney, Douglas Fairbanks, and hundreds of others. With all the events that go on in the cemetery, plus the studios being right next door, it's no wonder to think that there would be a lot of energy around this location. After Rudolph Valentino passed away and was laid to rest in the cemetery, a mysterious woman in black would bring flowers to Valentino's grave. No one knew who this woman was. Valentino passed away very suddenly after a surgical complication, so many thought maybe this woman was his girlfriend who everyone assumed was going to become his wife if he would have lived. Some maybe think it was a scorned lover of his. Other people think it was maybe a crazed fan. There's even a rumor that it might have been maybe his illegitimate daughter. One thing is for sure that this woman in black is still seen in ghost form. Her ghost is still seen today walking the same path to Valentino's grave before vanishing. Another well-known ghost is actress Virginia Rappé. Virginia went to a party in 1921 at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. It was a party for Roscoe Arbuckle. Virginia became suddenly ill and was rushed to the hospital the next day. 
She died four days later, and her friend accused Arbuckle of raping her, which led to three trials, a huge scandal, and eventually Arbuckle being acquitted, but sadly his career was over. I say sadly because now if you were to look back at this case, you'd realize it was mostly just a big media frenzy. The woman who actually accused Arbuckle of raping Virginia Rappé was kind of a briber, and she used this before. She'd had friends of hers come and claim that they were raped, and then she would blackmail the poor girl into a money payment. So she was just trying to get money out of it, is what it turns out it was. But it doesn't matter because at this time, the tabloids were a thing, and we all know tabloids are almost always made up. Uh, stories anyway. So the tabloids were back then presented more as a factual thing than today we know them as completely made up, or at least we should know them as completely made up. Today, the Arbuckle trial is seen as a really sad representation of people not paying attention to the actual evidence and listening to the outside influences, which today we know we should never do that. Also, um, Arbuckle lost his whole career out of this, so he went from being a superstar and being known as a very uh, happy man to being a very depressed man, and he passed away in only his mid-40s, and it was believed it was due to all the stress of the case. Either way, at Virginia's gravesite, people report feeling an icy, cold feeling even on hot days. People that have walked by her gravesite have also reported hearing a woman sobbing. She has also been seen sitting along the edge of a water feature that is near her grave crying. The Abbey of Psalms Mausoleum is also believed to be haunted by a man named Clifton Webb. Visitors have claimed to hear him whispering in their ear, feeling cold drafts near his gravesite, seeing strange orbs and lights, and also have the overwhelming smell of cologne overtake them while no one else is there. Many visitors to the graveyard have also claimed seeing apparitions wandering among the tombstones and strange mists, also hearing people talking when no one else is there. For our last haunted location in Hollywood, we are going to go above Hollywood to the Hollywood sign where one of the most famous ghosts in Hollywood is still seen today. The infamous Hollywood sign was originally built on a steep hillside near the top of Mount Lee in 1923. The original sign was quite different than what we're used to today. The original sign said Hollywood Land and it was an advertisement for a new exclusive subdivision that was being built below. The letters had been cut from thin sheets of metal and attached to telephone poles. The letters were 50 feet by 30 feet, and the letters were covered in thousands of blinking light bulbs. The original owners of the subdivision never meant for the sign to stay up there permanently, and by 1939 there wasn't any money for maintenance. The sign began to deteriorate during the Great Depression. In the 1940s, the city wanted to tear the sign down, but the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce offered to restore the sign, but only kept Hollywood instead of Hollywood land. However, the letters continued to deteriorate over time and were sometimes vandalized. In 1976, some vandals changed the sign to say Hollyweed. <laughs> the sign was finally refurbished in 1978. To raise money to repair the sign, Hugh Hefner, of all people, hosted an auction at his Playboy Mansion, and each letter was auctioned off as a sponsorship. Celebrities would sponsor a letter, and the money would go to its upkeep. Enough money was raised to refurbish the sign. The new sign was made of 45-foot-tall white letters made from steel, and it is 350 feet long. The sign was in danger of being lost again in 2010. Hugh Hefner stepped up again and donated $900,000 to help meet a $12.5 million goal to preserve the sign and the land it sits on. The 138 acres became part of Griffith Park. 
The sign isn't too far from the parking lot of Griffith Park Observatory, and I will post a picture of that because it's been in a lot of movies. It's a famous filming location, so I think you guys would probably recognize the observatory. You definitely recognize the sign. There are several hiking trails on Mount Hollywood, formerly called Mount Lee, and the main one from the parking lot gives you a nice view of the sign. While you're enjoying the view, make sure you keep an eye out for the most famous ghost in Hollywood, although it's more likely she will find you. The story of Peg Entwistle is so famous and it's also so tragic. Peg Entwistle was a young aspiring actress who dreamed of being a big movie star. She was born in Wales in 1908, but moved to New York with her family at age five. Peg's father was an actor on Broadway, but tragically died in 1922 in a hit and run. Peg went on to follow in her father's footsteps and tried her hand at acting. She was able to land a few good roles in the theater and on Broadway, and she took her good record with her to Hollywood in 1932. She got a role in a play called The Mad Hopes, and this had really good reviews. After this, she went on to audition for RKO Studios and was able to land a supporting role for the movie titled 13 Women. Sadly, this movie was not good and the critics hated it. This led RKO to cut several scenes before re-releasing it to the public, and this meant that most of her scenes were cut altogether. The final blow was when RKO canceled her contract. Peg was living with her uncle below the then Hollywood land sign. Peg became so depressed because her movie career was not going the way she dreamed it would, and she thought her life was over after her bad contract split. On October 16, 1932, she told her uncle that she would be going out for a walk. She never came home, and her family became worried. Two days after her disappearance, a woman was out walking on the trails on Mount Lee when she found a woman's shoe and a jacket laying on the ground near the Hollywood Land sign. After her walk, she informed police of her findings, and the police went up to the sign to investigate, only to find the body of Peg Entwistle down in a ravine underneath the letter H. It is believed that Peg was so distraught that she walked up the mountain and climbed up the letter H's workman's ladder and then jumped to her death. The police found a suicide note on her body that read, I am afraid. I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Signed, P.E. In a very strange twist of irony, a letter showed up at Peg's uncle's house three days after her death, offering her a lead role for an upcoming movie where her character would have been driven mad and committed suicide. After her death, the papers and tabloids had a field day with her story. The papers blasted her on the front page, saying things like, If poor Pig had only delayed suicide leap. I feel so bad for her because she was so upset over the movie that she didn't look back at all her great stage career that she had going for her. While she might not have been famous in life, she now is world famous in death. 
Beechwood Canyon Pass is now world famous for Peg's ghost. Hundreds of people have claimed to see her ghost walking near trails dressed in 1930s style clothing. She was so famous that there was even a story of her ghost on a TV show called Paranormal Witness. It basically went like this. In the early 2000s, a group of four young adults, or well, teenagers as I like to call them, went up to the sign after watching a baseball game at Dodger Stadium. They wanted to actually touch the sign, but security had since put up a fence around it so you can't actually get that close. The group decided to jump the fence and went to the sign anyways. After they hung around it for a bit, they decided to go back to their car. And while they were on the way, one of their friends tripped and fell down the hill. He was okay, but as he was going back up, he suddenly saw a woman walking toward him in an outfit from the 1930s. She appeared out of nowhere and she made no sound as she walked, and even though the hill was steep, she walked effortlessly up it toward him. After witnessing this, the group took off and ran all the way back to their car. The whole group claimed that they had no idea about the legend of Peg, but the run-in definitely scared them. Another story I was able to find was about a couple who was walking their dog when the dog began to act strangely, barking and whimpering at something that was not there. The couple then said, out of nowhere, a woman dressed in 1930s style clothing was walking toward them on a trail. The couple said that she looked out of it and they thought maybe she was a drunk actress. After Peg walked past them, the couple turned around to see where she was going and she had completely vanished. The night security guardsmen have some very creepy stories to tell as well. Many park rangers have said that they will be out patrolling around the sign when they get an overwhelming smell of gardenias. This was apparently Peg's favorite flower and perfume that she used. One evening in 2013, a jogger was out running on a trail when she had this overwhelmingly powerful smell of gardenias hit her and it caused her to have a massive sneezing fit. She stopped to try to catch her breath and looked up to see a woman dressed in 1930s style clothing with blonde hair walking straight for her. She got a bad feeling and took off running back to her car. The park has recently put up motion alarm sensors around the sign and fence to keep trespassers out. But the alarm is triggered so much that it has become somewhat of a nuisance. Almost every time the guards go to check the area after an alarm was set off, they find absolutely nothing there. There is yet another story from a jogger who was doing her usual route when she got the feeling that she was not alone. She looked over her shoulder to another trail nearby and saw a woman who she described as moving abnormally. She wasn't floating, but yet it looked like she was gliding up the trail, and she heard no sound. The woman who was out for a jog tried to run after her to catch up to her, but when she got to where the woman was, the woman had completely vanished, but the scent of gardenias was heavy in the air. The letter H seems to have a residual haunting of Peg jumping to her death. People have actually called 911 to say they witnessed a woman jumping from the top of the letter H, but when police arrive, they find nothing. Others have reported that they see her jump, but see her vanish on the way down. And perhaps even more disturbing, people have come across a young woman struggling in the brush as if she is trying to pull herself back up to the sign, but then she vanishes into thin air when people run down the hill to try to help her. Most people think that the ghost of Peg is more of a residual haunting since she never seems to interact with people around her as she passes by. The story of her death is so tragic, I wish she was able to see past the bad review that she got and see how good and talented she really was. But now, maybe she's happy being one of the most famous ghosts of Hollywood. After all, her death has even been featured in a music video by Lana Del Rey featuring The Weeknd and the song is titled Lust for Life. I watched the music video and I'd never heard this song before even though it came out a couple years ago. I'm always late to the party with songs and it's very 
eerie and spooky and they kind of go through like her motions that poor Peg would have done where she climbs up the eight she gets on top of course then she dances on top of it with the weekend but then at the end she runs all the way to the edge of the sign and jumps and then it shows her laying on the ground so it's actually it pays homage to Peg's suicide but it's also very fitting because anything goes in Hollywood enjoyed this episode of Haunted Hollywood. Our next bonus episode is going to be about haunted railroads, so I'm super excited about that. I love railroad history just as much as I love old ghost mining town history. And I forgot to say this in the other episode that I just posted, but if you're an American, the 26th is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving, everybody, if I don't talk to you guys until then. As always, stay healthy, stay safe, and I'll see you guys back here soon with Railroad Haunted History. And as always, thank you so much for being my amazing Patreons and supporting the show. All right, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody.